Hello, and welcome to the Landis Cooperative Experience podcast featuring the bull bear banter. We all know that markets often behave in a way that can't easily be explained. The bull bear banter is our best effort to digest the noise of the marketplace. So thank you for joining us. Sit back, relax, and let's talk about the markets. Hello, this is Tom Guinan, and I'd like to welcome you to the February 21st episode of the Bull Bear Banter. Cheyenne is out of the office today, so let's talk about where the market ended for the week. We rolled to the May futures this week for our cash bids, with May corn futures ending the week at 380 and three quarters, which is down two for the day, and for the week lost one and one quarter. December corn finished at 386, down two and a half and losing two and three quarters for the week. May soybean futures ended the week at 899, down two for the day, but for the week lost four and a quarter. November soybeans ended at 917 and a half, unchanged for the day, but for the week losing five. The main story this week was the data coming out of the USDA's Outlook Forum on Thursday and Friday. For U.S. corn acres this coming year, they estimate 94 million acres compared to 89.7 million last year. They also project ending stocks at 2.6 billion, up from 1.892 this year, even with increased exports, ethanol usage, and feed numbers higher. They also expect an average farm price of $3.60 per bushel, compared to the estimate last year of $3.85. For soybean acres, they are estimating 85 million acres versus 76.1 million last year. Ending stocks are estimated at 320 million versus the current 425 million, with slightly higher domestic use and much stronger exports. For the average farm price, they expect $8.80 per bushel versus their projection of $8.75 for 2019 and 20. Keep in mind that these estimates are calculated by economists and analysts looking at a lot of data that does not include surveying farmers. That data will come out the last day of March. We'll see if there's much agreement or disagreement with these numbers then. With that, let's move on to a condensed version of the bull bear info. For corn, for both bull and bear factors, ethanol production increased slightly last week to 306 million gallons, maintaining a pace strong enough to reach USDA's estimated usage for the current crop year. However, ethanol stocks continue to grow, now pegged at 1.041 billion gallons. This is a new all-time high, surpassing last July's record number. This, in and of itself, could and probably should cause some reduction in grind at some point. Corn export inspections were 31.3 million bushels last week, near the high end of expectations and up slightly from the previous week. However, they continue to lag the pace needed to hit the USDA's estimate for the crop year. We did see them reduce that number last month, but you have to wonder if a further reduction is warranted. Cumulative exports are now at 485 million versus 952 million this time last year. On Tuesday, we saw a pretty strong day for corn in Chicago. This was mostly due to a very strong performance by wheat due to a reduction in wheat estimates for Australia. But as I mentioned earlier, that wasn't enough to keep prices higher than where we closed last Friday. On the soybean side, export inspections came in at 36.5 million bushels, up from 23.5 million the previous week and continue to run above the average we'll need to meet the USDA's estimates for the year. Cumulative exports are now at 1.039 billion bushels versus 875 million this time last year. NOPA crush numbers were released this week, and for January it was reported at 176.9 million bushels, up 5.3 million bushels from last year for January of 2019. This is the largest January rate on record and indicates a continuing rise in demand for soybean meal. 
As far as what to watch for in upcoming events, we have one week left for you to sign up for our averaging contract. Current indications are that we have already exceeded the number of bushels enrolled last year, and there are quite a few people telling us to make sure to call them one more time before the deadline as they want to make sure they get some enrolled. If you need any information about this contract, please contact your local GMA. On March 7th, Daylight Savings Time begins, and that's just a couple of weeks from now. In our Why Does It All Matter segment of the podcast, I'd like to talk about our Women in Ag event ventures that we held last week. We had a pretty decent turnout, and the women that attended heard from some really great speakers and also participated in a grain marketing simulation that was very informative and very interactive. The main takeaway from the simulation was that the producers that do a better job of marketing start sooner, use various marketing alternatives like the averaging contract and offer contracts, and stay on top of their break-even projections in order to obtain favorable prices. At the end of today's episode, we have interviews to share with you from three of our speakers from this event. Katie Hall is with the Iowa Institute for Cooperatives, Jake Moline is with INTL FC Stone, and our keynote speaker was Delaney Howell. We hope you'll stick around for that bonus portion of today's podcast. In conclusion, I'd just like to say thank you for joining us for the Bull Bear Banter. If you'd like to contact us, you can send a tweet to atlandiscoop or just drop an email to podcast at landiscooperative.com. Our tagline remains the same. Bears make money, bulls make money, and pigs just go to market. If you have any questions regarding grain marketing decisions, please feel free to reach out to your area grain marketing advisor. Thank you for listening. I'll be out next week, but Cheyenne will be here. Well, hello, Bull Bear Banter podcast listeners. Today we are having a Ventures a women in agriculture conference special and i have with me one of our speakers from our ventures conference that was held last weekend katie hall hi katie thanks for being with us thanks for having me alicia so katie's role is the director of government affairs at the iowa institute of cooperatives of which landis cooperative is a member so katie can you tell us a little bit about what does it mean to have that job well so let me just start with saying every day is very different um, but I'm at the Capitol when the legislators are in session. So January to April or May, uh, depending on the year. I spend some pretty good quality time there, generally Monday through Thursday, and sometimes on Friday or even Saturday if they're in session, which isn't very normal. But I represent our cooperatives and help communicate issues that we may have with pending legislation or legislation that's already passed. Um, We also do some exciting stuff uh, related to uh, job board and some summer programming. This summer, in fact, we're going to have some legislative meetings we do every other year that will be really quite interesting and a great touch point for us with legislators. So not only are you leading legislative issues, that's your role, but the Institute of Cooperatives as a whole acts as an advocate for cooperatives. So your job is to advocate for us down at the state house, but then also advocating for our board members to help them increase their skills and learn more about what it means to be a board member. Absolutely. Providing more value to the cooperative, just looking at the details and, and what we can do to provide value to that those cooperatives. Um, through membership with the Institute for Cooperatives. So at the session today, you talked a lot about being an advocate for yourself. So we have a room full of female farmers, a room full of our female grain marketers, some of our female staff, and you talked about what does it mean to be an advocate for yourself? Any way to boil down your really awesome, exciting (laughs) 30 minutes into what does that really mean, being an advocate for yourself and for others? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, just be yourself. People connect more with somebody that's not trying to be like them, but somebody that's genuine. 
And that's really going to be the underlying message um, throughout advocacy. If you can just connect with somebody in a real level and create some honest, open rapport, that's key. Secondarily, I would say just don't be afraid to try something new and meet new people. You don't have to know or understand the whole issue to be an advocate. If you don't know, plan to follow up, get those answers and figure them out. But, you know, really our threshold for talking with legislators and making an impact is really, it's so low. And I had a legislator last year come to me and say, three of your members called me about this. What is happening? Um, So if you get three phone calls, this is critical level legislators seeking me out to find out what the real issue is. And I've looked at different studies, but less than 5% of people engage with their legislators. Really? It's that low? Wow. Isn't that phenomenal? So, I mean, if we could be a large percentage of that small percentage, that just helps us carry our voice further. You think about the fact that people talk about agriculture is such a small part of the consumer world, and then an even Truly. smaller number of that is advocating for themselves in a legislative way. Absolutely. Wow. And I think people get kind of shy about approaching somebody new or, or maybe somebody you've seen in the community that you haven't already built a relationship with. Um, but it's really easy to connect on those issues and just say, I'm Katie Hall, and I farm. And this is important to me because, and this is the potential impact and I want you to know and understand that. I'd love to be your, you know, your go-to or your expert on the topic. Be a resource for them. Absolutely. Thank you. So one of the things you talked about today was um, the role of farmers on a board. What do you feel is the value to the cooperative membership and to the farmer on an individual level of being involved in their board of directors? It's critical, right? Because if we don't have farmer representation, and that doesn't just mean a farmer of a certain type with so many acres or with, you know, um, that's a fourth generation or fifth generation. We all bring different ideas and experiences. So even if you're new to the farm world or you maybe don't farm a whole lot of acres, you bring something different to the table. And that uniqueness allows that board to be more diverse, but then more diverse thinking. We dug in a little bit on uh, the difference between females in leadership and and men in leadership, Uh, but we also talked a little bit about the difference between having one or two or three females on the board and and the impact that makes to the business. And um, it's just really fascinating to see how things can change when you introduce more diversity to that board. And it doesn't have to be somebody that is urban. We have a lot of diversity in our farm community already that allows us to just connect with people in a different way. And, you know, we have folks that don't come from the farming world that are now farming. Not very many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they bring different experiences, and especially the younger generation, you know, really getting involved. They maybe don't feel like they have time for it, but the time to make an impact is now. I would say, um, just from a shameless plug standpoint for Landis Cooperative, our board nomination process starts in June, but we're really starting now to say, how can we look for people that we might not have asked before? How can we look for someone that we need to ask them or give them a little bit more information and have them be interested in being a board member so that when we get to the nomination process this summer, we have more than enough candidates and people that kind of understand how the process works. So with a room full of women today at Ventures, Conversations and Connections and Agriculture Conference, tell me a little bit about what are some of the specific things that you told the women in our group, what they bring to the boardroom. Yes. Well, that's a great question because women tend to ask more questions. 
<laughs> um, I know I do. I'm the question asker <laughs> on our team as a woman. Yes, and for for boards that tend to be underperforming, introducing uh, two or three women to the board creates more question and answer type through that board meeting. Boards with three women on them tend to have higher success rates. Um, and I think that's because they draw from different perspectives, uh, but they're also more likely to read the materials. And we can all think of like ex- exceptions to that rule, right? Yes. <laughs> Where that's not exactly the case, but in general, that was really fascinating to me to hear that um, in one of the one of the audibles that I'll mention. Power moves is the name of it, but it's really fascinating. Chapter three focuses on powerful women. It's the only audible I've listened to multiple times because it really resonates with me. It's fascinating to find out that generally, and this is separate of power moves, but when women apply for jobs, they like to be close to 100% qualified. Men will apply if they're 60% qualified, generally. So if you're looking at the job description and 60% of the skills match up, a man will apply. A woman has to have 100% to match up to feel comfortable. And I think it's because, you know, I'm kind of meshing a couple of things together. There's a TED talk about how um, we teach our young men to be courageous and we teach our our girls to be perfect. And that's an overgeneralization, but it's okay to be courageous and make them tell you no. I've applied for some things I felt like I had no business applying for. <laughs> well, and we, we want our female members to have an interest in their cooperative, and, and we want to seek them out and urge them to participate. We want our men to do the same thing. Absolutely. Um, but it's just a little bit different perspective that they bring. So, Katie, thank you so much for being a part of our Bull Bear podcast this week, and thank you for being a part of our Ventures Conference. And if people want to get a hold of you or reach out to the Institute of Cooperatives, how do they, how do they find you? couple of different ways um, on our website it has all my contact information but you're more than welcome to reach out to me on my cell phone at 712-269-9838 and you can text or call basically when she answers I'll tell you that she's great so I try to very good um, so just reach out however works best for you but my email is also online Iowa yes. Institute of Cooperatives give it a google and you can find Katie Katie thank you so much for being with us today thanks Alicia Welcome to our special edition of the Bull Bear Banter Podcast. This is Alicia Hewen, and I have with us today Jake Moline. Jake was a speaker during our Ventures Women in Ag Conference last weekend. Jake, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I thought that one of your very first slides that you shared was really interesting and very poignant, if you can use poignant as a word to talk about grain marketing, yeah. um, but it was a slide from Iowa State's Egg Decision Maker, and it showed the time of the year when sales are made by farmers and the time of the year when sales are actually most profitable by farmers, and those did not match. So most farmers market grain in the fall, and that is one of the least profitable times to market grain. Talk a little bit about the advice that you gave to the group. Yes, you know, those who follow the markets are well aware of the the typical seasonal that plays out in corn. Typically, we're building premium into the market in the spring time frame into early summer because of some perceived weather issue. And in a normal year, that weather premium gets retracted out even quicker than it gets put in starting in about mid-July through August and September. The chart does a good job showing that farmer sales typically 
are inverted with the seasonal, meaning that they are heavier in the fall when prices are at their lowest value. Uh, the typical farmer, I shouldn't say every farmer, is not forward marketing enough grain during that time frame during the summer where premium gets built in. That also happens to be the time frame when emotions are at their highest and it's most difficult to make decisions. But producers who tend to make objective decisions and set price targets based on break-evens and, and be aggressive in that time frame where it, it tends to be more difficult end up much better off in terms of making profitable sales. There's one phrase that you've used both in your presentation at the conference and in a couple of articles that you've written from FC Stone for our Landis Cooperative members, and that doing nothing equals risk. Can you explain what that means? Yes. In doing producer meetings and trying to advise producers on their grain marketing strategy, typically the, the most common shortcoming or mistake that I see is just a indecisiveness in general. Typically making a decision about marketing grain ahead of time is always going to be a good decision for the most part. When you look at you know a normal crop year, there, there are too many producers that uh, put off making a decision and become price takers rather than price makers. Uh, they're subject to the spot market. They're subject to paying storage. They're subject to buying carry instead of selling carry. And just making that first decision oftentimes is the most difficult thing. But once you get started and you know, we, we found through a little game that we did here today at the Ventures Conference, we did a little grain marketing simulation. And most of the ladies here learned a lot, I think, from some of the seasonal charts we showed them prior to that simulation and did a very good job being aggressive, uh, setting offers and making sales in the seasonal time frame where it makes sense to do that. And a lot of them did a good job putting bushels into the average price contract that Landis offers that performed very well. And those that did not um, and were a little bit indecisive or too bullish uh, were left making sales below break-even levels and getting charged storage as we moved into the March timeframe of the next year. So it was a good learning experience, I think, for them. And those that uh, kind of took to heart that Iowa State chart, I think, did better in the game. It was definitely fun to watch around and watch the team decision making. I mean, usually in an operation, you don't have five or six people who you can bounce ideas off of, but it was also very clear that they were working to diversify their risk, sell little pieces of their crop at a time to try to be successful. There was a cheer from the table who made the most money at the end of the season. Yes. Yeah. Decision by committee uh, does take a little longer than the way I uh, thought it up, but for the most part, you know, these ladies and ladies in general that that are involved in the grain marketing decisions for an operation tend to be a little bit more objective sometimes than their husbands, use less emotion when marketing grain, which is a good thing. And so I just encourage uh, those ladies that are on, are involved to keep doing what you're doing, keep uh, you know providing value to the operation through your uh, decision making. And, and those that aren't, maybe look into doing that. I think a lot of men out there could benefit from involving their wives a little bit in the grain marketing side of the business. So you also talked a little bit about what's going on in the marketplace at the beginning of your ventures presentation over the weekend. What are three quick things that people should be keeping an eye on as they're making grain marketing decisions going forward this year? Yeah, the corn market's extremely boring at the moment and range bound. And the soybean market is under quite a bit of pressure from some outside market factors, not necessarily related to the fundamental situation here domestically. But you know, I think soybeans are, are pressured due to the African swine fever situation. Uh, that's gonna continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. The trade war phase one trade deal or not continues to be a negative impact on soybean prices. Coronavirus has been a negative impact on commodity prices in general. As we move forward, the the number one thing that the market's going to be watching and talking about is acreage decisions 
as we move into the spring time frame. We're expecting upticks in both corn and soybean planted acreage, probably a, a little uh, tendency to, to lean a little heavier on the corn side of things. Uh, and because of the supply issues that could play out or are likely to play out in corn because of that planted acres number and because of the demand issues on the soybean side of things, I think what's most important or the best advice I could give to people is to uh, be ready for that opportunity when it does arise and be aggressive about taking advantage of it because it usually does not last very long. And for those of you putting together uh, marketing plans here for this next year, go ahead and, and please start to develop one for a new crop 21 as well because that is really as early as your marketing plan should should begin. Yeah, and make sure you think about those getting those offers into your Landis Cooperative location. Yes, those that had offers working in our game tended to do better. So for in order for an offer to get filled, it needs to be working. So make sure you get those working. <laughs> Very good. Jake, thanks so much for being a part of our conference and joining us for the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to this special edition of the Bull Bear Banter podcast. And today we have an extra special guest, Delaney Howell, with us. Delaney was part of our ventures, Conversations and Connections in Agriculture Women event last weekend. So Delaney, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I really like the name of the podcast too, by the way. <laughs> we have these really cool squish animals that have a bull on one side and a bear on the other. So once you realize that they're not weird, they're pretty cool. <laughs> so at the conference, you talked a lot about what's going on in the marketplace and some analysis and gave our, our female attendees some insights. But for this podcast, we wanted to learn a little bit more about you. So we know that your plate is really full right now. What are some of the ways that you're talking to farmers in all of those venues? Yes, you're right. I keep my plate very full. <laughs> I've always been like this through high school and college. So currently I have the Ag News Daily podcast. So some of your listeners probably have listened to it. We're a daily podcast, oh, which wow. is a lot to commit to, but we are three years strong in March. And so in that podcast, it's myself and Mike Pearson, and we focus a lot on what's driving agriculture from a news perspective, but also taking time to talk about commodity markets, weather, technology, interesting producer stories. So we try to cover the gamut of agriculture being another way for those farmers to find their news and information. So that definitely takes up a lot of my time. And then like this past event that we just did with Landis, I'm getting out and traveling all over the country and outside of the United States even to talk to producers, talk to those people that are end buyers, talk to really everyone in the food chain for agriculture and talking to them about what's driving the commodity markets, what's driving our geopolitical markets and trade situation. And so that's really interesting as well. Uh, those two things take up a lot of my time. Obviously, market to market also takes up quite a bit of my time. And then I also do a ton of freelance reporting for This Week in Agribusiness. I have my own radio program on your ag network, which is in the upper Midwest states. And then I guess I also have my own business doing media consultation media trainings for groups and also helping to fill that role if they need somebody else extra that's good at multimedia or digital stuff they turn to me to kind of fill that role for them as well. Talking and telling the story of agriculture is such an important thing right now in our industry. So we appreciate you running yourself ragged on behalf <laughs> of the industry. So you talked a little bit about some of your international travels. Can you maybe give our listeners some insight into one of those uh, trips and what kinds of questions are you getting about agriculture and maybe Iowa agriculture that our Iowa farmers would expect? Yeah, so I have been to, I think, 22 countries, I want to say 
to date, and some of that was done during college where I studied abroad, but a lot of that has also been post-graduation. I travel almost every year with the United Soybean Export Council to a Latin American country, and so we've done Colombia. Let's see, last year we did Chile. This year we're going to the Dominican Republic. And so that conference is really unique in itself because it's The United Soybean Export Council connects with soybean buyers and soybean importers from Latin American countries to try and increase the U.S. footprint down there. And so it's always interesting the types of questions we get from them. They have a lot of questions. It's usually the end users like livestock facilities, Mm -hmm. biodiesel facilities, any sort of post-soybean consumption facilities. So they always have a lot of interesting questions, interesting perspective. And I'm amazed at how much other countries are watching what's going on with the United States as far as agriculture is concerned from a commodity market perspective, from a trade perspective, and from a policy perspective, all eyes are always on the U.S., it seems, from what I've gathered. So uh, when you go to places like Colombia or when you're going to be going to the Dominican Republic with USEC, what are some of the points that you like to drive home that try to answer some of those questions in advance for those end users? I get an interesting perspective because I'm a reporter, but I'm also from a farm and have my own kind of two cents to add to things. So usually when I'm in those type of roles, I get to do a lot of moderation. And so usually there's farmers, commodity analysts, maybe a couple end users here within the United States. And so it's fun to help drive those discussions because as a moderator, you kind of get to lead the conversation to the different avenues. And so it's always important, I think, to discuss why we do what we do, even, you know, end users have an interest in learning about that. I think it's also very interesting when you talk about it from a technology standpoint, because we in the United States are, if not arguably, the most productive country Mm -hmm. as far as... Yeah, absolutely. And so I think a lot of other countries turn to us to get perspective on that, how they can improve their agricultural systems. And so it's fun to help drive the discussion to talk about those different things. Really glad that you're able to participate in our Ventures Women in Ag Conference. And for a young woman who's fresh in her career and can give such a good storytelling aspect of agriculture I think is important. Um, What advice do you have for young women in agriculture, women who are starting their own farms, women who are managing their own farms from what you've seen in your perspective of the industry thus far? I'm definitely all about women getting involved. Women are better marketers. I think that most men would agree with that. That's the theme of the conference, definitely. Women are better marketers. Women have the drive to be successful. Women don't need I mean, it's great if you have a husband or a boyfriend or someone that's supporting you and helping you do all those things, but women don't need men to do those roles anymore. And I think between FarmHer and some of those other leaders, there are women that are kicking butt for women in agriculture, and it's just really inspiring to be part of that journey for women in agriculture. And so I guess my advice is never take no for an answer. And I'm definitely a yes man, (laughs) as you can tell with all the things on my plate. But I think that by saying yes, you never know what door is going to open next. And so I always say, be a yes man and never take no for an answer. Tell me a little bit about your background growing up. And when you were a little girl, would you ever have imagined that your career would look the way that it does? Yeah, so growing up in southeast Iowa, we have a row crop and feeder cattle farm. And so my parents are still back there. Columbus Junction is the Mm -hmm. hometown. 
we kind of dabbled in everything and I was very active in 4-H and FFA and showed livestock at the county fair and so we showed everything under the sun. I think chickens and rabbits were probably the only thing we never <laughs> showed. I don't think I ever saw myself going into agriculture because when I was little I just didn't imagine that as a career path for myself and my dad still teases me today because out of all three of his kids he said you were the least likely I thought that would go back into a career with agriculture but in high school I had a really really good FFA teacher who inspired me and when I started college at Northwest Missouri State started as an ag education major and thought I wanted to teach agriculture and did a couple of practicum courses and thought maybe this isn't the best fit for me but I at least knew that agriculture was where I wanted to be I felt very passionate about telling agriculture story and connecting with consumers that didn't understand agriculture and so it's been a crazy ride, but I'm excited to see where it continues to go. You've had so many awesome opportunities. So when we think about your presentation last weekend at Ventures, but can you try to boil down for our podcast audience, what were some of the take-home messages for the group? Yeah, so essentially I talk about the big picture stuff, the fundamentals of what's driving agriculture, not only the commodity markets, but just agriculture in general. And so I kind of allude that there's six categories in which agriculture is moving forward and those aren't end-all categories but those are kind of like the big six that I pick out so one of them is commodity markets another one is global and domestic policy supply and demand what I coin the term as Twitter culture, weather, and the era of the consumer. And so each of those are fun to talk about. And I think those are the big things that are moving agriculture forward. Well, we definitely appreciate you spending last Saturday with our team. And uh, if folks have more interest in what you talked about, they can check out the hashtag Ventures 2020. Uh, we did a lot of live tweeting during the event so they can check up on it there. Delaney, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.